on Tuesday, April 13th, it is reported that President Biden is expected to announce upcoming plans to fully withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by next September. Rather than defying the previous pact initiated by former President Donald Trump and the Taliban, Biden plans to extend the stay of U.S. troops in the country a few months beyond the initial agreed-upon deadline of May 1st without the Taliban's approval, which could lead to the end of ongoing ceasefire and resume attack upon American soldiers. Alongside other recent international-based initiatives, including proposing a summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin, initiating climate change discussions with the leaders of China, and reinstating the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action towards meetings with Iran, President Biden appears to be taking a different approach towards foreign diplomacy than his predecessors. But the question remains, is that enough for significant change? Today, I will be talking with Senior and Vice President Jack Peterson and sophomore and treasurer Megan White of the Model United Nations International Student Council chapter here at WAC as to what good foreign diplomacy looks like, what methods should be adopted to progress, and what could hopefully be accomplished internationally within the next four years and possibly beyond. I'm your host, Olivia Montez, and this is Washington College Weekly. My guests today are Model UN International Student Council, WAC Chapter, Vice President Jack Peterson, and Treasurer Megan White. Jack, Megan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So first, how would you describe your positions and roles as members of the International Student Council at the WAC chapter of Model UN? So I'm the vice president of the Model UN Club. What I kind of do is I organize the meetings. I don't set the time or date or anything. I just make sure that it's registered through campus groups. I make sure that everyone has information about what sim we're practicing. I'm usually the head Dell for our conferences. So I'm the point of contact people. If there's an issue or something's happening that they don't like during their committee, they come speak to me and then I go to a head Dell meet and I have to meet with the executive of the committee. We were at ConMunk, which is Concordia University up in Canada last or two weeks ago. And we got two fourth places and then we had a second place finish. So we did really well. It was the first time in three or four years we got someone to win an award. So that was really big. So, I mean, specifically, I am the treasurer, which is pretty self-explanatory. Then I also serve as a delegate for the competitions that we compete in. With COVID, I've only competed in two competitions so far, but I have plans to compete in more. But so pretty much what my role is at these conferences is to research a specific topic from a committee and then represent a country. So, for instance... Last year, when I competed in an in-person conference, I was St. Lucia for a special committee in the UN that focuses on South America and islands in the Caribbean. And the topic that we did was representation for indigenous populations. So I represented St. Lucia on that issue and wrote resolutions, debated, and collaborated with other countries. So I really just take on the role of whatever country I'm representing. So how would you describe good foreign diplomacy What characteristics or qualities demonstrate a balanced or almost symbiotic relationship between foreign nations? I think a good foreign relations and a good diplomacy means that both sides are winning equally and that it doesn't create conflict because for every action, there's a reaction. I kind of like to think about foreign politics as like throwing a stone in the water and watching the ripple effects. Everything we do has a ripple effect, whether it be a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now. And I think that 
the best foreign relations is where the ripple effects are controlled, contained, and we can tell what's going to happen. So how do you believe that the Biden and Harris administration has been and will approach future international diplomacy and relationships as opposed to the previous administration? But the reality is, when you look at the last few decades, really almost the entire existence of our nation, we see this huge militarized complex. And it's the whole idea that our country is so developed into the military. You look at our budget, we invest so much money. And a lot of it is for show, to show off that we have a bigger gun than you do. I even remember my sister graduated from West Point last year and President Trump spoke at her graduation. And I remember being really frustrated with his speech because it was seemed a lot more like an ego contest. And I'm thinking, you just spent millions of dollars educating this class and you want to focus on how big your military weaponry is when these are the most educated people in our military. Shouldn't we be talking about how they are going to be diplomatic? Shouldn't we be talking about how they're going to use their education to improve things, to be better, to try to aim for peace instead of showing off our guns? So I hate to say it, but I think Biden and Harris presidency is still going to be the same. It may not be as severe. I don't think they're going to take as much of an isolation route as Trump did, but the military complex is still going to exist. The military ego is still going to exist. We're still going to want to show off our biggest guns. And we've already seen that. Biden has already done that, trying to prove that he is not a force to be reckoned with. You know, he's exchanged words with Putin and there was a bombing in the Middle East. So I think it's going to be better than with Trump. I think it's going to be more collaborative less isolationist, but it's still going to be a lot of military ego and like that. Concerning the U.S.'s current relationships with global powers such as China, Iran, Israel, North Korea, and Russia, what do you feel needs to be further strengthened or improved upon towards reaching compromise on ongoing issues such as human rights violations, nuclear weapons challenges, anything like that? I think For human rights, that's really challenging. I think the United States benefits a lot by having other countries have human rights violations because we can use that and abuse that with the World Bank or the IMF. Those kind of institutions are neocolonial tools for the Western world to control the global South. And I think that it's a little hypocritical for Western countries to be like, oh, you're committing human rights violations when we did it 100 years ago. Yeah, times have changed, but the only way we know how to develop or go through the process of development is through those ways. And it's hard for us to sit there on a moral high ground when we did sort of similar ways. But especially with nuclear weapons, I think because of the way nuclear deterrents work, it's dangerous, kind of defeats the purpose of war because then it's just more tensions building up. And I think that people focus on, oh, we need this and they're dangerous. And I think it's more of an an ego trip type of device. I think that's why North Korea is so focused on it. They're like, oh, we'll finally be legitimized, not look like a rogue nation if we have one. And then Iran wants one because they feel threatened because everybody in the Middle East hates Iran. So they're like, oh, we need a nuclear weapon to be safe. I think it creates a cycle of hostility between everyone, but I think that everyone benefits from it. I think that, oh, North Korea is building this weapon. It helps them. So the United States is not like, well, let's solve it slowly because we still benefit strongly from this. And we want to think about, especially democracies, that when you campaign, you need to have a platform. And when there's a common enemy that people feel united against, it's a lot easier to campaign. And so I think that's an easy talking point. It's like, oh, 
I'll stop North Korea. And like Obama said it, Bush said it, but Trump did it. Kim Jong-un feels more like he can threaten more because President Biden is more level-headed and more will work things out compared to Trump. But it was much more dangerous to their regime. And what methods do you believe need to be adopted to reach an agreement or a compromise that benefits both sides of the issues faced? Very much like model United Nations. It has to be about collaboration and discussion. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but collaboration, discussion, communication, understanding and respect are big things. So when I read articles, I try to read different countries' perspectives because I find it interesting. When I was catching up on updates on the Iran nuclear deal, I read one from, uh, I think it was like Jerusalem Times, and they flat out called the U.S. actions laughable. And it's so funny because then you look over to the Washington Post and they're kind of portraying it more as like this valiant effort by the United States. There's such an ego problem. The fact that Iran leaders and United States leaders have not met in the same room for the first few days of the discussions, they had a mediator going in between the rooms to talk about it. How are things going to happen from that? If there's a lack of respect and then refusal to collaborate, those are going to be issues that are always going to block. And I mean, the thing is, it has to be on every front. Each country has their own ego. I think that the United States is a little bit heightened, but that's also because I'm in the United States. So I see it a little bit more than I would if I was in a different country. But we got to get over that ego so that we can actually have collaboration, have discussions and have those types of diplomacy that we actually need in order to move forward in anything. With all this in mind, what do you hope can be acknowledged or reached upon regarding the U.S.'s relationships with the countries of China, Iran, Israel, North Korea, Russia, and other global superpowers within the next four years of the current administration? I think we need to work together. My father always said that I don't think we all realize that we're all human until the day the aliens attack. We need to realize that we might not all look the same, but we're all the same people. We all have the same basic genetic makeup. We're all probably related if we go far enough back. But the earth is dying. We're destroying the world slowly by mining and excavating. We're committing human rights violations all over the world. And at the end of the day, none of that really matters. And our humanity and our faults are what makes us humans. But what we got to try to work on the next four years is just de-escalating it. And that's hard because you can try to de-escalate it, but someone will always want the power because people want the ego trip and then notoriety and to be the most powerful. But we all need to work together. And I think we need to stop trying to fight these wars. And I know it's hard for people in the global South to understand that because they've been so oppressed and attacked by these global North countries. But I think we need to look to the stars. I think we need to go into space. I think we need to build space colonies. I think we need to go mining in space to get the minerals. The world only has limited resources. And if we exploit that for building weapons, what's going to happen when we have another pandemic and we don't have the resources to build this or that? I think we need to stop fighting each other. We need to learn to work together and come together and help each other and realize that the world is our home until we can build another one that we need to stop fighting. We need to stop wasting our resources, our money on war. We need to realize that if we don't take care of our people, then we'll always be in war. But I guess in the United States, we're in a military industrial complex that feeds off war. So what kind of benefit does that help the government? I'm an optimist in a lot of things, and I want to be optimistic. I don't think anything will change in the next four years. I think 
Our relationships with allies will increase. For instance, we've already seen a lot of improvements with allyship in this Indo-Pacific Sea. So we're starting to have better relationships with Japan, India, countries like that. And that's really important with the whole South China Sea issues and Taiwan Strip. I do see in the next four years, like I said, we're going to go away from that isolationism that we saw with Trump and moving in towards more of open diplomacy, which is going to be good. But if I had to be honest, do I see major things changing with our relationship with China, Russia, Iran? I just don't. I also want to say that I kind of view myself as a pacifist. I'm not, I don't like war. I really, I think that a lot of it just has to do with fragile egos. Of course, though, I'm a 20 year old from South Carolina who has never served in the military, never done anything like that. So my perspective is obviously very different. I don't see much changing because the things that I believe are needed to change. So eliminating nuclear weaponry, demilitarization, and then just getting rid of the ego. I do not see those three things changing in the next four years and honestly, maybe even my lifetime. Hopefully things will change though. I mean, Gen Z is powerful and I think Gen Z shares a lot of similar ideas with me. So maybe when Gen Z takes power, we'll see some change. But in the next four years, I'm not sure if I see that. Well, Jack, Megan, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. In other news, as of April 9th, the Washington College Contingency Planning Group had announced in a recent newsletter that... The fall 2021 semester will feature in-person instruction and will continue to abide by three to six feet of social distancing between classrooms and other learning spaces, as well as continue to offer both on and off-campus housing for returning students and continue the practice of wearing masks and other coverings while on campus. The CPG is also currently evaluating the following items, whether or not to require vaccines upon returning, the continuance of online learning, and ongoing COVID-19 testing and similar protocols. Final decisions are yet to be announced. This has been Washington College Weekly. I'm your host, Olivia Montes, and I will see you next week.